listening to Bits of Me, the podcast about women's bodies, all the things we should know about them, and all the stories behind them. This week, I talked to two activists who have played a major role in the Better Maternity Care campaign in response to the maternity care restrictions throughout the pandemic. Emma Carroll is an environmental scientist and farmer who had her first baby at the start of the pandemic, and since September last year, she also runs In Our Shoes COVID Pregnancy, which gives a voice to the people affected by the restrictions. Linda Kelly is a trade union official by day and longtime women's rights campaigner, now also the founder of Women Ascend and member of the Better Maternity Care campaign. Linda gave birth to her second baby during lockdown. Before we start, a massive high five and thank you to all the Bits of Me listeners and supporters who keep listening, sharing and giving me feedback, and especially to the patrons who help keep these conversations going. You can become a patron too by signing up at patreon.com forward slash bits of me. Emma, do you want to start by sharing your experience of giving birth during lockdown and what that was like? Yeah, so I'll keep it as sweet as I can. Um, so I was 34 weeks pregnant last year in 2020 when we all sat down and watched Leo on that lovely night in March. Um, and I suppose at the time I didn't actually realise what it meant for me because I assumed that kind of we'd be looked after, if that made sense. It never dawned on me that they might actually remove my partner per se. Um, so we kind of just took it from there. And I think my next antenatal appointment was in and around that time. So when I went in, they had kind of said, oh, you know, uh, partners are out and um, my partner wasn't able to come into the appointment with me I knew that and um, but I then kind of dawned on me what it meant for the birth as well and mm. um, so I was told he'd be allowed in when I was in active labor and um, nobody could tell me what that was um, and I was just told I'd be fine and uh, get on with it so yeah my version of fine and getting on with it was essentially crying for six weeks um, because just the utter panic Um, I mean I don't come from the best home background uh, my partner has always been literally my rock. Um, like I'm a very strong, independent woman, but I really rely on him mm. um, a lot. And I, I just, I knew I couldn't do it alone. Um, I knew I could get through the birth part. It was everything in between or, you know, before and after that, that was really concerning me. Like how long would I be stuck on a ward for by myself? What would happen to me afterwards? So anyway, like I say, it was fairly distraught for about six weeks. Couldn't get answers anywhere. Um, and eventually then went into labor uh, just the day before my due date. I, I woke up and I knew I was in labor and I, woke up I was like yeah in labour that's grand and then I was like oh no I'm in labour (laughs) because I knew what it meant so I laboured at home for as long as I could we live about an hour from the hospital and um, himself was getting kind of antsy in fairness to him Uh, and he was like I really think we should go in and I was like Gary I'm a first time mother I am not going near a hospital if I'm going to be relegated from you for the next Mm. 24 hours like good luck to you so anyway eventually my contractions were fairly close together and I for the sake of him I was like right okay we'll go in given that we are an hour away so went in and I went into the hospital by myself uh, had to leave him at the door and um, went in I was very calm very relaxed and they didn't actually believe I was in labour because I was a first timer and I was not hysterical enough <laughs> um, but anyway I went up to be yeah I was like okay uh, so I went up to be assessed and I was surprised then that they told me that I, my partner could come in for that part so I was like fab brilliant so I called him he was equally surprised he came up and, um, you know, while I was waiting for him to come up, the midwife had said, like, do you have any preferences? And I was like, look, I'm very non-fussed. I'm a farmer. I'm very practical about these things. The only thing I want is as minimum an intervention as possible. Unless it's medically necessary for me and my baby, don't want it, not interested. I am 
blowing this popsicle stand as quick as I can mm. once this is out. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, that, that was essentially my instruction. Um, I told her nothing, you know, just leave me be, please. Um, so that was grand. And within two minutes of saying that, my partner came in. So I hopped up to be assessed and she said, um, look, I can't actually tell how far along you are because your, your membranes are bulging. And I was like, okay fine and she said I was like well what do you have to do and she was like I have to break your waters right and immediately like I had looked into it before and I was like I do not want that like I knew it was constituted an induction of labor which I didn't want you know a possible cascade of interventions I'm a first-time mother like good luck um so I said well what do you you know what happens if you don't do that you know because I was relying on my little brain anagram I was like I've got this and she just turned to me and flatly said if I don't break your waters he's leaving what and I just panicked yeah and I my mouth just went completely dry and I just yeah yeah fine fine do it and not to be too descriptive about it but I like her hand inside me will haunt me forever doing that mm. um I knew I was fairly advanced in labor and she broke my waters and said oh you're three to four centimeters that's a surprise and I was like yeah um so once she broke the waters everything went really 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 quickly then so my first contraction started at seven o'clock at home I got to the hospital at 11 a.m and my daughter was born at quarter past one Wow. Uh, so it was extremely quick, you know, especially for a first time mom, which I wasn't expecting. But yeah, as I say, once she broke my waters, everything went extremely quickly. Um, I obviously dilated extremely quickly and I told her, you know, I'm ready to push. They didn't really believe me. Um, but anyway, we got through it. Uh, my daughter was born and it was just it was an awful experience, to be honest with you. She was born. Um, I don't know why the midwife did it, but I never got to hold her. I never got skin to skin. Uh, she was just swaddled away from me. Not a bother on the baby. She was fine. Um, before my partner could even attempt to look at the baby or cut the cord, before I even saw my baby, the midwife said, oh, I'll do this, and cut her cord. And I could just see my partner's face fall, like he had been left out of everything. Um, and this was the one thing that I knew he wanted. Mm. Um, and in any case, I never said anybody could cut any part of me or my baby. Mm. <laughs> so that was fine anyway. We got through that. I got to eventually hold her. And um, next thing I started bleeding. Um, and the midwife looked extremely panicked. She didn't know what to do. And I remember my partner just saying, like, do something. So she ran out of the room and then the room flooded with people. So I hemorrhaged a bit. Um, and I just remember I was in agony. And I remember my partner sitting in the corner just holding our baby um, as the room completely flooded with people and him looking at me like he thought I was going to die. Um, it all got brought under control. That was fine. I got the baby back and um, he, we got 20 minutes together. And he was told, I didn't even get to say goodbye. I didn't even get the warning that you're leaving soon. They just started wheeling, you know, told me to get up, get onto the wheelchair and they'd wheel me down to the ward. I had to go now um, and say goodbye to him. So I remember my partner handing me our baby and holding my hand as we walked down to the elevators to go down to the ward. And I remember him just looking at me and I could just, I could feel his worry because it would be me. Like if I just watched what happened to me, happened to him. And then I had to hand over our infant child and not know what was going to happen to either of us. I looked a shade warmer of death. I just lost a lot of blood. I was very weak, very shaky. And I just, I remember just trying to be as reassuring as I could with this weak smile on my face. And I was like, yeah, we're fine. We're fine. Go on, go on. We're fine. Mm. Um, and that was it. We got brought down to the ward and we were uh, totally on our own. Um, I didn't even get to put my bum on the bed. And they said, you need to go for a shower now. And I was like, okay, okay. I was like, who's going to watch my baby? And they were like, oh, don't worry. If she cries, somebody will hear her. So I was like right okay um I went into the showers and I, I, 
nurse followed me in or a midwife followed me in and because of the bleed I had to have a catheter um which mm. was fine like well actually it wasn't because they never explained why it was put in I remember after the bleeding stopped and they were stitching me up um they just put a catheter in me and I remember sitting there in fear thinking that I had either torn so badly or hemorrhaged so badly that I wouldn't function as a human again mm. and I was like why is this being put inside me anyway um so I went down to the shower and as I went stepped into the cubicle um I went to close the door behind me being you know in the shower and the midwife put her foot in the door and said you can't close that you're after hemorrhaging and I was like okay and she said it's just in case something happens to you one of us will be able to get in and then she left so I was supposed to leave the door open on the public ward to have a shower so did that that was fine now I did close the door you know slap on the hand for me <laughs> I'm not an animal and uh, went back to the ward uh, fortunately my baby was still breathing but there wasn't a soul in sight to look after um, on the ward all the curtains were closed because covid and that was grand and so that was about four o'clock and I remember there was a jug of water on my bedside table and like I say totally to our own devices and that kind of thing looking after ourselves which is fine like I don't expect special service or you know they're you know I was happy to get on with it myself I didn't want anything special from anyone and I remember about midnight um my water had gone I was really thirsty I was breastfeeding so I had baby on top of me the entire time I was you know I had a catheter I was really weak really sore and I remember the midwife doing a round and I said, oh, sorry, would you mind if I could get a bit more water, please? And she said, oh, you can take your jug and fill it up down the hall. And I was just like, oh, my God. Now, I don't know if people might think that I'm being a bit of a princess there, but all I wanted. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Somebody to look after me, just that one bit. Yeah. Like, so I remember having to leave my baby again, mm. leave her in a crib and I literally hobbled down the hall. I remember leaning on the wall the entire way down and. Um, obviously postpartum bleeding I had my catheter mm. trailing out of me um very uncomfortable very sore and weak and just trailing down the hall of the jug to try find the water dispenser um which I did but yeah it, it wasn't great all the time now my partner was texting me like how are you how is she are you okay and I was like we're fine she's great she's adorable blah 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 mm. not telling him that I was literally after having the worst experience of my life with the birth and then just being left totally in the ward so so yeah, we got home the next day. I literally was up and dressed and wanted to go. I was like, I am leaving. Mm. <laughs> what do I need to sign to go? And uh, eventually got home and I didn't get any public health nurse visits because the hospital actually forgot to notify the public health nurse of my baby's birth. So a week after we got home, I called the public health nurse and she was like, sorry, when was your baby born? And I was like, oh, a week ago. And she was like, oh my God, I was supposed to be there like five days ago. Um, I'll be out to you straight away. And she filed an incident report then. It was just... The whole thing was awful. We had no care mm. at all. It was just not something I'd ever want to repeat. It literally haunts me, particularly the labour and the birth and the I'm breaking your waters or he's leaving. Like it was just horrific, to be honest. Mm. So that's me. Mm. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. And Linda, you give birth under lockdown as well. I'm actually not sure I can get through that without I'm so shaky after listening to Emma. I know, yeah, it almost uh, feels uh, insensitive to move on. Um, and no, it's but. fine. It's just so much of what you said. It's like a combination of my first birth, which was incredibly difficult for similar reasons. And then also having to have a, a baby under lockdown. So I have two kids. I have an almost three-year-old and now an almost one-year-old. And so my first, I'm just going to set the scene a little bit with my first pregnancy because it, mm. it kind of impacts on why why I found the COVID restrictions so difficult is that and kind of a straightforward enough pregnancy. 
on my first baby apart from the fact that a fertility specialist had said I would never conceive naturally because I have PCOS so like the whole thing was a total surprise um but once we kind of got over that anyway kind of a straightforward enough pregnancy and like that I was 10 days overdue and my some of my waters broke at 4 a.m in the morning and uh kind of exactly what Emma described ended up uh, like a cascade of interventions then over the next 36 hours so that started at 4 a.m on Thursday and she was born by emergency section at quarter past nine on Saturday morning and just as well for context to anybody listening my baby was 10 pounds 11 when she was born um so and she was the wrong way around as well and too high up oh, in my no. cervix so um and like that, like I've actually only in the last few days, I suppose, like I always felt I had let myself down by not advocating for myself, but a very similar interaction with a consultant where now I kind of recognize actually I was totally coerced into an induction that I didn't want and that I didn't believe was medically appropriate. Um, and so when it came then to my second pregnancy, uh, I was like from the start it started off rough so I had an incredibly bad morning sickness I was almost hospitalized and this was just before Covid this was around Christmas time and then at my booking scan and I'll just put a little trigger warning here because I'm going to reference uh, infant death but there was no infant yeah. death um, at my booking appointment the midwife came out to me so like I was like ready for the booking appointment I was like okay I know I do not want this consultant anywhere near me and like if I have to throw a tantrum in the hallway of this hospital I'm going to make it clear I'm not to be allocated to this person which mm. it's difficult to kind of make that stand in a public system because they're kind of like you'll get what we give you um, and so I was in my booking appointment and the midwife came out to me and she said, oh, you know, she brought me into the room and she's like, you had a really traumatic time when you were here last. And I was really surprised. I was like, is that on my file? Like what they did to me? Like, do they also think it was really bad? Like, and I was kind of relieved and I started to tell her the story a little bit and to kind of get it all out on the table, like really early on. And then yeah. she said to me, oh, and it clicked with her and she said, OK, she said, there's been a mistake. Your file says that your baby died. And so the hospital for 18 months had it on file that my first daughter had died. She was very much alive. And so like I just went into shock in the appointment and I mm. just like I got through, now the midwife like she like referred me for physio. Like we did everything we needed to do. But like I came out of it and I was like. And it was almost like when, you know, you go into this kind of weird mode in these appointments of exactly like Emma, you know, everything's fine. I can get through this. You kind of know you have no option but to get yeah. through it in order for it to end. So mm. you're just like, OK, let's go, let's go, let's go. And it was kind of when I got home and I started telling people they were properly horrified and then I ended up having to ring the physio department about my referral, which was inaccurate. And I ended up bawling down the phone to the poor secretary in the physio department. And I was mm. like, OK, I was like, I might have a bit more kind of anxiety around this than I realised. And so I was kind of all set to actually approach the hospital about what had happened at my booking appointment when I was driving home from Dublin for from work. So I live in Cork, but I'd been in Dublin for work and I started getting a pain in my side. And I was like, okay, this is like incredibly painful. I remember being at 
if anybody does the Dublin Cork Drive, you'll know like Junction 14, mainstay like in the, the kind of popping off the motorway. And I went in and I was like, get a bottle of seven up because that will just cure everything. And <laughs> I remember ringing my husband and I was like, I honestly don't know if I can get home. Like I can barely walk. Um, And uh, so I got home eventually, like the last bit of the drive was blurry and I just went like collapsed into bed didn't even think about going to the hospital for some reason I was like must just be a pulled muscle went to the GP the next day out to the A&E and they were like oh it couldn't be your appendix you're not sick enough like the you're not hysterical enough Emma and I was like you know I was kind of like holding on to it I was like yeah absolutely I'm not sick enough this you know surely something else and my husband was kind of looking at me because this was just before COVID this was the start of February and he was looking at me in the A&E going hmm you know I think maybe you need to prepare yourself that it is your appendix and I was like it's not my appendix it's not my appendix and like says me like eating my lunch or whatever and next thing they came out and they were like we can't rule out that it's not your appendix, so maybe stop eating. And I was like, <laughs> sorry. And um, so I went to the hospital at like 12 o'clock in the day and at seven o'clock that night, eventually a surgical consult came to see me and they were like, that's your appendix and we're bringing you for emergency surgery. And I think, what? Okay. So that happened. And then I was at home recovering from that and everything about that went okay. And I actually got to meet my obstetric team this time around and stuff like that. So it actually kind of gave me a positive interaction with the hospital, which I hadn't had previously. And Mm. so that kind of helped. And I was feeling a bit more, I suppose, positive around the whole thing. And then COVID came and then I didn't know what was going to happen. And so I was 20 weeks. So I had to go on my own to the anomaly scan. And it's sometimes you do wonder where the humanity is like in some of this because I remember saying at the anomaly scan oh can I take a video or a picture no that's not allowed yeah they like most hospitals won't allow you to take any recordings or pictures of scans I saw I saw one from what hospital was it today from Cavan I think that said oh for GDPR reasons like I'm a GDPR nerd and I'm like it's the scan of my baby in my body which means under gpr rules that data is mine to have if i so want it um but anyway i digress linea so that's um so that was it and then all the appointments after that were on my own so like i suppose we were halfway so you know we kind of knew there were loads of restrictions in place and because i knew like like that like my husband got me through the birth of our first daughter. Like I, like I wasn't in my senses for a lot of the labor. I, you know, like consenting to the section was questionable, like to be honest, because I really, you know, after that stage, um, didn't really know what was happening to me. And I just kept thinking about like, well, what, what's going to happen this time? And so I went to my 20 week appointment and I said to the, you know, I kind of knew probably I was going to go for a planned section, but I wasn't, didn't have my mind made up. And I was talking to him about it. And I just said to the doctor, you know, if I was overdue again, would you induce me again? Like, would mm-hmm. would somebody break my waters again? And he just went, yes, absolutely. And I mean, my whole body just physically recalled in the consultation. And I was like, yeah, 
I'm, I'll have a planned section. I was like, mm. there is no way I can go through that again. And then I was talking about, I was asking them, and I think what people don't realize, like, I think people think the health service is very benevolent and they will do the best by you. And my experience after having children is that that is not the starting position of a lot of the services, like not necessarily the individuals, but just the culture in the organization mm. and the culture in the maternity hospitals. And so I very clearly said, I do not want this person anywhere near me. And he looked really panicked and he was like, I'm going to have to go talk to the consultant about that. And the consultant came in and I just made it very clear. I was like, I will never consent for this person to be anywhere near me. So we need to figure out a plan. And she and she knew she knew exactly like I was obviously not the first woman to say that to her about this other consultant, you know. Um, and so that was fine. So she booked my section for me there and then she offered me counselling, which was the first time that the hospital had ever offered me any sort of mental health support around my experiences. Mm. That in and of itself is just still kind of galling to me, you know, and um, mm. that that isn't there as standard for people. And so kind of time went on and I was kind of getting myself ready for, okay, I'm going to be there on my own. It's going to be three nights after the section. I was like, you know, do I need an extension lead for my phone charger? What shows am I going to download onto Netflix? Like I was just distracting myself with everything practical of like, how, how do I just get through this? Like not think about it, not actually engage with it, but just how do I get through it? And so that was fine. And then it came to around 35, 36 weeks and the country started reopening this time last year. Exact same as where we are now. And people were going to pubs and people were going to shops and people were going to restaurants. And I was like, okay, this is great now. That means like something must be lifted. Something must be changing. And nothing changed for me in Cork. If I had given birth in Dublin, it would have, but they kept the restrictions, the really, really strict restrictions in Cork. They wouldn't reply to any emails about it. They wouldn't reply to any social media posts about it. Um, I remember at the time just feeling like I was screaming into the void as to like, how can people go to GA? How can people go to pubs? Mm. And yet the person I live with who made the baby, who sleeps in the bed beside me, how can we not be together for the birth of our second child? And no one still in the last year has ever answered that question for any of us who have given birth under COVID. And I think it's just, it's really distressing because it's really distressing all through your pregnancy because it's a hamster on a wheel at the back of your head. Like it's not just the birth, it's there all the way through. And I remember at my 36 week appointment, I went in and I was all like kind of hopeful. Like I, I was so naive in one sense and... Uh, and I went in and I said, you know, like everything's opening up. Like, so do you think in four weeks time, by the time my section is planned, like that it'll be, he'll be allowed in to visit. And she looked at me and she just said, you should have no hope that the restrictions will be list- lifted in this hospital. It is not going to happen. And I burst into tears. I, I cried throughout the rest of the appointment. She told me information about medication I had to take for my section, about lots of other things I had to do to prep for the section. And I don't I don't remember any of it. I just remember crying. It was like a real watershed moment and coming home and 
bawling on the phone or bawling into the arms of my husband and um, mm-hmm. how I even drove home from the hospital I don't know because I was just so upset and so when people talk about the safety of our care like is that not also compromising our care like I would just sometimes love to sit in a room with these people and actually explain to them do you realize what you're inflicting on us because mm-hmm. myself and Emma have had this conversation like those experiences never leave you like I'm left with that and I had so much hope that this time would be different like I had so much hope that it wouldn't be like the first time I gave birth I had really wanted a do-over for want of a better word and like okay the planned section was a bit easier but like I had to spend six hours on the ward before the section by myself in one of the like you know at the time like honestly like I messaged a few people friends who've been pregnant and the Netflix show Money Heist is honestly the only thing that got me through that weekend because it's subtitles it's Spanish and so you can't do anything but pay attention to the show and that was honestly my way of coping is just I just watch that and try to sleep and had section in the middle of the section heard them call for the senior consultant and started getting very sick in the operation which is just my reaction to the anesthetic it wasn't anything else and then in the recovery room afterwards, the consultant came, or the doctor came in and she was like, so she was like, there were some complications and I still had like a tube coming out of me collecting blood. And she said, whatever way you healed after the last section left a lot of scar tissue. So we had to take your bladder out and we had to run through things and make sure that we didn't like wreck your bladder. I was just like, what? Sorry, oh, what? Oh my God. And... And again, like, you know, I misunderstood because obviously like you're, you're on a whole load of medication and like, you're just, you've got Mm. everything going on. And so I had this thing coming out and she had said something about a hundred mils and that if the blood uh, went over a hundred mils, that basically they'd have to come back. And so I took that as they would have to come back and do another operation. And like, so I'd already had my appendix out. This was my second section in three years. And I was just left. I remember that whole night thinking like another operation, like another operation. And Mm. the next morning, the doctor came around on their rounds and they were like, what? You're not going for any operation. No, it's fine. Like, it's not that serious at all. And like if he'd have been there, like I'd have had somebody to have that conversation with, you know, because he would have picked up what I hadn't. Um, and so all that unnecessary worry. And um, so like that, just got through the weekend, basically um, looking after the baby. I had a great midwife and I had a consistent midwife. She was on all weekend with me. Um, and unlike Emma's midwife, actually physically took the baby and held the baby while I had a shower and stuff like that, because they were all the things I was worried about. Um, mm. and But like that was just the luck of the draw. That was the luck of the draw of who I got that weekend. Um, and so Monday morning like that, I was pretty much dressed and packed before breakfast and just like, how fast can I get out of here? Um, and then that got delayed and things like that. Um, and that was it, mm. you know. And I think one of the things that I really love about your podcast and about telling these stories is that we internalize these experiences and we think it oh, must just have been me. Like, I thought that for so long yeah. about the birth of my first daughter, like, that it must just have been me. Like, like I didn't do enough. Like, why didn't I fight more? Why didn't I say more? Mm. 
And actually, it's like now I, I'm beginning to think, well, why did they treat me like that? Yeah. Like, why are we being treated like that? And the stories coming through of what people are experiencing under the restrictions and the impact it's having. I don't think. I don't think people really realize the extent of how traumatic and difficult it is. Mm. On that note, um. Emma, you went on to set up In Our Shoes COVID Pregnancy, um, a kind of spin-off of Erin Darcy's In Her Shoes from the abortion campaign. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about the stories that came through and what the whole project was about? Yeah, so kind of like Linda just said there, I mean, we internalised so much. And I remember whatever it was that twigged me off in September of last year, September 2020, um, it came to my attention that the maternity restrictions were still in place. Um, I mean, I had had an hor- like a horrific time and I just kind of assumed logically that with the reopening of everything and everything getting back on track, that maternity would be taken care of. Because, I mean, we had the World Health Organization telling us that birth partners were essential, no question. Mm. Um, and I just thought these people are going to act in the best interests of the people accessing the service. And I was so wrong. <laughs> so... Yeah, I basically was like, okay, hopefully this is, I'm the only person that's gone through this. Like nobody else has had that forced on them. Nobody else sits there at night uh, imagining a midwife inside them uh, taking their baby out. Like, no, that that's just me. It was look at the draw, you know, it was just bad luck. It was just me because everybody else has second babies, don't they? Like that, yeah, it's just me. So anyway, um, I thought, well, what if it's not? And surely these stories deserve to be heard. Like if this is how it's affecting people. So I started climbing up some trees and I got in touch with some maternity advocacy services and I said, look, is this something you might want to shine a light on? Because there have to be people being affected by this. And I kind of got nowhere. And then I remember going to Erin Darcy and I was like, look, Erin, you did a fantastic job within her shoes. Very big fan. Um, would you please do it for this? I think it could be great. And she was like, you're definitely on something. Just I can't take it on. So mm. I was like, fair enough. So then I ended up so um at the same time that I was on to Erin it also turned out that um Kira McGuane down in Clare uh she was also on to Erin and then we both kind of connected and after a phone call one night I keep saying it was like my second baby of 2020 was born uh we started up the page and I kind of hoped that it would fail we set up the page and within two days I think we had between 40 and 60 stories mm. and not one of them positive like the most horrendous things you could possibly imagine and I remember them just coming in and thinking firstly how is this happening and secondly how is it happening that the only people that these people feel they can vent to are strangers on the internet who set up a page 12 hours ago on Facebook like how bad is it that we are the only outlet for people so the thing behind the page is we share the stories of the people that have been affected in their own words I don't want to hear from a hospital master, if I can, I hate that word. I don't want to hear from a hospital <laughs> master about how the restrictions are great. And women actually love them. Did you know the women love the restrictions? Because the wards are so quiet and it's lovely and no visitors and all this kind of thing. I, That's wrong. I knew yeah. that was wrong. Mm. So we published the stories of the people affected in their own words as they want to tell their story, not through some consultant, not through the HSE, not through some board telling us that it's great, there's no problems here. <laughs> so as I say, we are inundated the most horrific things you could possibly ever read I don't think I've actually fully I'm very much desensitized to it now mm. I think once the first few days passed I kind of just had to put up a wall and I, I do my very best to help people when they message in like I give them as much support as I can do but I have not processed the levels of trauma that I have read 
I just, I don't think, I'm not sure I ever will. I keep saying whenever my inevitable uh, mental breakdown happens, it's going to be spectacular <laughs> because there's just so much that I'm carrying for people at the minute. And happily, happily, it's a privilege, an absolute privilege. I'm just so annoyed that I have to do it and that it mm. has to be done. So mm. as I think to date, we've probably received into around maybe 300 stories. I don't have a, a firm figure on it, but I know for a fact that I've received maybe 15 positive. And it's bad that I can count them. Um, I used to be able to count them on one hand. I know up to February, I think we had about 10 positive stories in the entire thing. Yeah. Um, and when I say positive, they weren't like glowingly positive. It was just, I really thought this was going to be bad. And now I still feel like a human being afterwards type positive. It wasn't like mm. anything to write home about. Yeah, but, um, the bar is very yeah. low. Yeah, exactly. It was extremely low. Um, so that's essentially it. Um, I mean... We started up in September and around the same time we kind of collided with Caroline Cumming who had set up the Uplift petition. Mm. Um, it was newly formed and then we kind of had, myself and Kira had a little WhatsApp group anyway and Caroline kind of came along and then I'm sure Linda will go into it. Linda rolled in then and then we collected one or two, a couple of other people then and mm. really started gung-ho campaigning. I mean, we set the page up in September and I was like, okay, firstly, we're giving a voice to the people that have been infected thus far. And secondly, I'm assuming that these experiences are going to stop because these restrictions are surely imminently lifting. Yeah. And they didn't. <laughs> and then we really had to and they haven't. the hard campaigning. They haven't. So Linda, they haven't. Linda, do you want to just briefly um, tell us about your initiative, Women Ascend, that you set up? Yeah, so Women Ascend was probably happening anyway um, outside of the Better Maternity Care campaign. I suppose I have worked in a trade union for the last 10 years and it's a predominantly female uh, trade union because we represent the public sector. So about 80% of our members are women. But like everywhere else in society, you know, you go up through the upper echelons of the union and it becomes more and more male dominated mm. to the point that it's around 80 to 90 percent male dominated at the top of the union on both the elected and the staff side. Um, so there's nothing unusual about that as opposed to politics or, you know, boards and business and, and things like that. It's problematic across the board. And one of the things that I've really been paying attention to over the pandemic is that it has so disproportionately affected women. And so I just kind of felt from conversations I was having with friends um, and with other women that I suppose the pandemic had taken off the blinkers. And so they were really seeing the inequalities that women in Ireland still face in yeah. a way that they maybe hadn't been paying attention to before the pandemic or maybe it hadn't directly impacted them in their lives um, until the pandemic. Because I, I don't think there is any woman that is coming out of COVID not absolutely exhausted from carrying the load of childcare, homeschooling, uh, you know, our healthcare professionals who are predominantly women, long COVID disproportionately affects women. You know, there is a whole suite of things. Mm. And so I really wanted to create a space where women could come and they could claim their power and they could actually come and they could get upskilled and they could we could build capacity in a space that was not for men. Like I am sick of making feminism palatable to men or making the inequality that we face palatable to men in decision making so that they might actually do something for us, you know? I just kind of at that level of frustration that yeah. I was like, do you know what? I'm just going to go and radicalise the women of Ireland <laughs> on Instagram. And 
I didn't put that in the bio because I thought it might scare people off. Uh, but that really is what it was about. And so I was kind of posting, uh, you know, I was finding my rhythm and kind of posting a few different things around like master suppression techniques that people use to kind of keep you you know down mm. um, and uh, I'm making hand gestures here on the video but obviously <laughs> your your listeners can't hear that um, that people in power use mm. to keep other people out of power and kind of how to give feedback and, and I got really great feedback like from people like people shared really vulnerable stories with me of like this happened to me in work I never realized that you know this was something that could be named that there is a language around it and so we had kind of pressed pause on the public side of the campaign in January when we were in the surge and in the lockdown because I suppose we had always privately kind of sensed that a lot of the restrictions were appropriate in a very severe surge and a very severe lockdown. Mm. Uh, not all of them now, mind, mm. uh, but a lot of them. Um, and then, like, you know, again, we just all were kind of like, how are we back here? Like, you know, conversations were starting about lockdown lifting and about everything else going. And so then the Better Maternity campaign kind of collided with Women Ascend. And here here we are now just mobilizing women at a rate that I just I haven't seen in a, you know, probably since repeal, actually. Mm. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, just the response is incredible. Like, I've never known so many people to email their TDs, to email hospital management. And like, it's so like the replies are just getting saltier and saltier. And it's brilliant. Like, because, you know, TDs are like sending out there thank you for your rep you know I've made representations and good luck good day you know vote for me at the next election and all the women are coming back being like yeah thanks but like that's not enough because don't you know that the restrictions are still in place for this and still in place for this and I'm 30 and have you gotten the risk assessment from Galway University Hospital because I haven't seen it and so I'd say all of the TDs are just sitting there going <laughs> what is <laughs> happening like how how are they so well informed how are they so articulate I don't know what to do with these people and um, and so that in a nutshell is really what Women Ascend is yeah so considering as you say some sort of restrictions were needed mm. very very quickly very suddenly um but considering that, what were the main ways in which the restrictions were really flawed and really damaging at the beginning? I think part of the problem, like I think everybody understood like in March, April, everybody was scared and nobody knew what we what to do. And one of the things that was really hard, like Emma gave birth earlier than I did, is that nobody had any clue about how COVID impacted on pregnancy. Mm. Um. But I suppose putting in restrictions that were based on fear as opposed to evidence and then refusing to review them in any meaningful way as we learned more about the disease, as we learned more about how it spread, as we learned more about how to protect ourselves. It wasn't that they were like, you know, they were obviously very difficult at the start, but there was a rationale in terms of the immediate reaction mm. from the maternity hospitals. Come kind of May of last year, that, you know, like even you might disagree, Emma, but like, you know, very soon after we started learning so much more about the virus and they have steadfastly refused to consider other safety measures. They have steadfastly refused to put investment in. So like I've said this in a few different arenas, but, you know, they say their priority is to keep us safe because 
us, you know, is like it's so paternalistic. Mm. But like, where is the investment in home birth services? Where is the investment in community midwifery? Where is the investment in antigen testing for partners? All of these things mm. would keep us safer than keeping our partners out. And now there's research around the impact of these restrictions on our perinatal mental health. Yeah. And they're all just pretending like no, 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 we're right and you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And we won't review them and we won't issue our evidence. Because Emma, what do you think? Is there is there evidence? There is evidence. We're just not being presented with it. I mean, I am a scientist, so I am steadfastly methodical. I'm that one on the WhatsApp group that whenever people pop up numbers and figures, I'm like, this is X per X. Like I'm calculating rates and all the rest of it. Like I'm very much methodical and evidence-based. And that is the one thing that is really gotten on my uterus this entire time is just where is your goddamned evidence like they're tell me like I have said the entire time if somebody presents me with a risk assessment demonstrating that the firstly they've adequately calculated the risk to include perinatal perinatal mental health um, among other factors um, showing that the risk to uh, pregnant people in hospitals is quite high if a partner enters the building I will shut up Mm. like please actually show me that information because I really want a day off at this point it doesn't exist. Nobody has provided mm. us with it. I, They haven't even prepared it. I mean, we've seen intel from inside hospitals from senior clinical management and they're like, it doesn't exist. Now, whether that's the senior clinical management speaking to us saying, you know, giving us the indication basically like, you're right, like, you know, keep going type thing. Uh, an act of solidarity, so to speak, because they're all really holding this very strong line of, no, this is fine, this is fine. We're doing what's best for you. We're protecting women. Um, and I mean, it's just gotten more ludicrous as the year has gone on. I mean... It should have been lifted last summer. As um, Linda said, I was just one of the very unfortunate cohort in April last year, so March, April particularly. Um, and I'm saying that to anybody listening, like that doesn't mean that you shouldn't feel the way you feel about what you went through. Mm. That doesn't diminish in any way your experience or your feeling or it doesn't invalidate your emotions. Don't let it, you know, don't let that overriding justification of, of restrictions justify how you feel about it, just to throw that in there. Mm. But yeah, there's there's just no evidence. And I mean, as I say, it's getting more and more ludicrous. We're weeks and weeks now and they just keep pushing us down the line and pushing us down the line. Um, We have like masters in Dublin hospitals saying, oh, they can't use um, testing on partners because it's not reliable. And I'm kind of saying, well, firstly, you're using it on women. And secondly, this testing is holding up the economies of entire countries. I mean... Like there's there's companies in like I think Volkswagen uses text testing regularly. Mm. Um, large companies in Ireland use it. We're into, upholding the entire economy, and you're telling me it's just particularly mm. unsafe in your unit. And why is that? Um, but we can't get the answers. It's a stone wall. Mm. And be, and I think they are really scary because like I didn't have any COVID tests before my section in July. Yeah. There like there was no so you know it's it's like there is no thread line of rationality through the restrictions and I think women are finding and their families are finding that incredibly difficult because like we have all been educated in public health we have all understood about how it transmits you know indoor versus outdoor mask wearing like we all now have a baseline knowledge around COVID and they're trying to pretend like there's an extra layer that only the heads of the maternity units know that somehow underpins what they've put in place and it just isn't there mm. and and um, it is really really problematic at this stage because it, it is very discriminatory mm. uh, because this is a female dominated service yeah and emma you mentioned earlier as well how um the rates of postnatal depression and postpartum anxiety have gone through the roof 
Yeah, so I mean, those figures came out quite uh, prelim- preliminarily um, into the pandemic last year. I mean, towards summertime, we were getting indications that rates of postnatal depression had tripled. Um, and I mean, when you consider that that rate of postnatal depression pre-COVID was measured at 15%, like if you're tripling that, that's nearly half, if not more, mm. of um, new mothers reporting that they're depressed. Mm. Um, so we had that preliminary data to go on, but then um, a game changer, I suppose, last week during uh, maternal, me- maternal Mental Health Week was the Psychologists um, Society of Ireland came out and basically had a, a damning report uh, stating the impacts of um, COVID and particularly the COVID restrictions on um, maternal mental health. Mm. Um, it's been shocking and there's been so little support as well for people. I mean, we're talking from an environment where people are isolated at home anyway, so yeah. there aren't any of the traditional supports. And then on top of it, they're now coping with all these restrictions to which they're having receiving no justification mm. um, and getting no communication on. And you mentioned as well um, the implications for informed consent uh, related to trying to kind of figure out when you're in established labour so to be able to let in the partners. Um, Do you want to explain Mm -hmm. that as well? Yeah, this is one that particularly grinds my gears because it's a pure abuse of power and it's a pure abuse of pregnant people using a service. So for those who are listening that don't know, what has basically been a steadfast tenet of these restrictions the entire pandemic is that your partner is permitted for active labour. Um, now, I will note as well for those who went through it in Mullingar last year, that was actually pulled altogether. You weren't entitled to a birth partner at all. It, the doors were closed one day and people gave birth alone for about two weeks there. Um, I didn't know that. But generally speaking, active labour. Yeah, it was horrific. So like people have planned sections. Yeah, in Kilkenny, in Kilkenny they stopped people, um, partners coming in for planned sections. Oh my God. Yeah. That happened. Oh, and Till also August. Kerry, now that we're saying Till it, I remember. August. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Like I got a, or just a sideline, I got a message from a woman in Kerry in October who was due to go in for a planned section. She called the night before, she had her COVID test, she was negative. She called the midwife the night before and the midwife said, yeah, your partner could come in. She went in and was waiting there, you know, that lovely wait period before you're brought down to theatre when it's an elective. And um, the an- anaesthetist came out and said, your partner is no longer permitted. Mm. And she gave birth alone. She cried for the, the rest of the three hours she had to wait. It was horrific. But anyway, uh, the act of labour. So essentially, what is defined as active labour, I actually don't know the definition of active labour because once you're in labour, you're in labour. But So if you're in one particular unit in Dublin, active labour is one centimetre cervical dilation. But if you're in another Dublin unit, two kilometres across the Liffey, um, it's four centimetre cervical dilation. So depending on where you live folks uh depending on how your cervix is dilated will will justify whether your partner gets in or not whether you're classified as being in active labor so that's one complete oh it's just it drives me mad but anyway the only real um way that will be offered to you to assess your cervical dilation is um via an internal examination mm-hmm. so that's basically where um a, a healthcare professional uses their hand puts it inside your vagina and assesses how uh dilated your cervix is that's really the only option. There are some other ways of assessing it, but most medics wouldn't really be trained in it. And frankly, I don't think they want the hassle of having to go through it all. So they just, up oh, there you get, and uh, let me see what's inside you. So the HSA national consent policy is, is in existence. So it's an actual documented thing. And it is also mentioned in the national maternity strat- or, yeah, the national maternity strategy that um, informed consent is a central tenet of any consent provided. If your consent is not informed, it is not consent. Mm. So for consent to be informed, you have to be informed of the benefits of everything. You have to be informed of the risks and alternatives should also be presented to you. That is not happening in maternity units at the minute. Mm. Um, And I will 
defend that to the ground, what happens is people go in, they know firstly that their partner is not permitted to be with them unless they're in active labour. So they already know that in order for that to be assessed, realistically, they have to consent, is what they feel, yeah. to internal examinations. It's insane. Like That is not informed consent. That is consent under duress. If you are consenting to somebody putting their hand inside you when you don't want it there, purely so that privileges that have been withdrawn from you with no reasoning whatsoever can be reinstated, that is not consent. Mm. And I just want everybody to know that. And you can refuse at any point as hard as it is. And it's the same, like we, we're getting a lot of, I suppose, anecdotal stories in from people saying that they're agreeing to inductions because they know that if they agree to the induction, well, then at least they know their partner isn't going to miss the birth because it's more you know it's more timelined as opposed to you know when your labor starts you know it can go from anything from five hours to 50 hours yeah. you know what I mean like it can it, there's no knowing how things are going to go um, and then also like a lot of stories from people giving birth in their cars because they didn't get to the hospital quick enough because uh, they labored at a home for as long as possible because they didn't want to go in without their partner or a message I got in from somebody last week who said I'm so angry seeing the minister on the news talking about restrictions being lifted I turned up to my hospital he wasn't allowed in and I left the hospital again to go and labour in the car park until I felt like I was close enough that we could go in together like how is this Ireland in 2021 Mm. and just to say as well this is all what we've been talking about now is all uh, in relation to labour and giving birth Uh, There are a lot of people who have had to go in on their own for scans after having a lot of really bad news delivered at scans more than once, you know. Um, So there's a lot, a lot of trauma involved. Huge, Uh, huge. And and one of the things that uh, somebody said to me in a message was that being placed in a position where you are the person that has to go out to inform your partner in a car park of a pregnancy loss means that that experience is wholly yours and it is not anything shared anymore that you become the person that has to deliver it and I just thought like you know that's what you're you're just really isolating women even further at a time um, and also they were meant to, if if you recall, there was a big outpouring on Liveline before Christmas around pregnancy loss. Mm-hmm. And they didn't, it's not stated in the current HSE national policy that they're all bleating on about today. There's nothing in there about having a standard approach to pregnancy loss. There's a lot of compassion in local units, but it is very dependent on a local unit. And just last week, people going into Dublin hospitals on their own after diagnosis of pregnancy loss for follow-up appointments and not being allowed to have anybody with them. Mm. And Stephen Donnelly is in the media saying the restrictions are being lifted. Pull the other one, Minister. Yeah. So to try to kind of draw some conclusions or summarise a little bit, based on your own experiences, both of giving birth under lockdown and of all the campaigning that you both have done, what would you say are, are your main takeaways from all of this? I'll give two, like really short and succinct because I know that's what you're looking for. <laughs> One, I think women are amazing. Like the, the, the solidarity, the support, the campaigning from women to support other women over the last number of months has, like I'm actually, has been an experience that I will hold in my heart for the rest of my life. It has been incredible. And the other thing I will say 
is that there is a reckoning needed for those in charge of Irish maternity services because all of these problems were all there before COVID. Mm. They will all be there after COVID and a top-down approach to ridding the system of this anti-woman attitude is needed. Mm. Emma? Kind of following on from what Linda said, I mean, one of the biggest take-homes for me is just the lack of value and the lack of value essentially that's placed on women in this country. Uh, we're not believed, we're hysterical, um, we don't know what we're talking about, we're not worth taking the time to explain things to. Um, it's just assumed that we'll go away and that we have no tenacity about us. That's wrong. <laughs> so here we are. Um, and I suppose for anybody listening, the one thing that I really, really, every time somebody messages into the page, the one thing that I really try to drive home is how much power you have as a person. I mean, there are over 60,000 of us that assigned, a signature, or assigned our signatures on a petition. That's nearly one signature for every live birth in 2020. That's powerful. Mm -hmm. There is an entire community of thousands of us who have been affected. It is not just you. You are not alone. And please don't ever feel like you are alone because you're not. And speak if you can. If you can't speak, send me a message and I will put your message out anonymously. You deserve to be heard. Your voice carries power. Obviously, it's a very vulnerable time when people are pregnant. If you feel like you have to step out and mute the campaign and, you know, it's a lot to take on, do it. There are thousands of us and we will hold the line for you and fight for you until you're ready to come back and hold our hands and do it with us. There's power in our voices and don't ever let anybody take that away from us. They can try to take our dignity. They can try bring us down to nothing. We can feel subhuman at times, but we're not. We are not. You are worth it. We are all worth it. And if we keep fighting, we can make something better of it. That was Emma Carroll and Linda Kelly on Bits of Me. I'll put links in the show notes to the socials of both In Our Shoes and Women Ascend, where you'll be able to keep up to date on any campaign news and other maternity care related issues. You can follow Bits of Me on Instagram at Bits of Me underscore podcast and on Twitter at Bits of Me underscore pod. If you want to sign up to become a patron and get early access to episodes and more, go to patreon.com forward slash Bits of Me. Please keep rating and reviewing the podcast and keep sharing your favourite episodes. Thanks for listening.